What's up, everyone? I'm Andrew Cox here for episode 35 of Great Quarter Guys. I guess this is the Kevin Durant episode if we're going to keep going with our sports numbers. I'm holding down the fort by myself today. No Kevin, but I do have an incredible guest with me. This is the director of Passport Research, Mr. J.P. Hampstead, back again. How are we doing, J.P.? Good, man. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. Yeah, it's quite. It's raining actually so hard right now that it may come through on our sound here. It's it's we we have we've been deprived almost of our of our rain that we were became accustomed to during the first three months here in Chattanooga. But <laughs> I was happy that it's been uh, sunny the last few weeks. But it is pouring rain right now on this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, so we'll, we'll we'll hop right in. I'll jump into that Bank of America data that we've been speaking about for the last few weeks. Oh, first off, by the way, hat. Thank you, Craig Fuller. You uh, hooked up the TV team with some very beautiful Nike hats. I wanted to wear it, and thank you for that. Uh, But on that Bank of America consumer spending data, Kevin now owes me $3. Uh, We we went year over year, total card spending positive twice more in the last week. Uh, And this is the week of the 14th to the 20th of June. Uh, and and honestly, it was more of the same on all the other categories. We see smashing numbers for online electronics, for total, I mean, for, excuse me, for online electronics, home improvement, and furniture. That is uh, fantastic news. It's continuing kind of more of the same there. We had kind of seen a, we'd seen restaurants start to pick back up uh, where, we had, where we had averaged in the negative 35 to 40% range in early June. We had seen that pick up here in our latest week of data to the mid-teens uh, down, but that kind of reaccelerated towards the end of our data. Who knows what that means? Uh, overall, it seems that people aren't hoarding right now the way that they were back in early March. The the spending at grocery stores is still up about 20% year over year when it was up uh, very high, up, up 50-60% year over year back when that first kind of panic buying started. But there that is. We will hop into our big conversation today, and the big conversation is based around a report that Passport Research put out last week. This is, of course, JP's team. They did a Q2 3PL preview. It seems uh, it, all of the 3PL, all the big public brokerages, they focused on six of them. They are will be re- reporting their Q2 earnings in the next two weeks or three weeks or so. So JP thought it was timely to, to do a little preview about margins and about uh, what has happened in Q2 for these companies. And you really start and you open up the piece looking at the six largest largest public brokerages over the past few years. You looked at kind of the cycle that has ensued since, you know, I guess you kind of started 2015, 2016. Give us a little bit of the cliff notes on the last couple years uh, pre-COVID, and then we'll hop into how how the coronavirus has affected the public brokerages. Sure. Yeah. Um, thanks, Andrew. So we looked at um, data from Hub Group, C.H. Robinson, Echo, Landstar, J.B. Hunt, XPO Logistics. Um, over the past 10 years, looking at gross revenues uh, and gross margin percentage mainly. Um, and basically, I mean, the story here really is that 2018 was an outstanding uh, revenue year because of high volumes and high rates. Uh, revenues um, have contracted pretty broadly across the industry on a year-over-year basis since the first quarter of 2019. Um, and while uh, revenues were falling, margins were widening in the initial stages of that down cycle. So if you think about um, the way that spot rates would have fallen faster than contract rates, meaning that costs were falling faster than revenues, margins widened, um, then 
margins stagnated in, in the trough. Uh, most of 2019, it was fairly stable. And um, then uh, started contracting again as contracted freight prices were adjusted downward to converge and close that gap with spot. So that's kind of been the story. Um, and we've seen some, you know, uh, a couple companies have been able to return to growth kind of at the end of this trough, uh, re- revenue growth that is, including, um, you know, J.B. Uh, Hunt and uh, Robinson and Echo. Uh, you know, we're talking single-digit growth here. Um, but what we were really interested in was the margin story because the if you if you go back to the first quarter earnings calls that we um, listened to, obviously all the management kind of talking about um, January through March and then giving updates on April trends. Uh, those calls really took place kind of in the second, third week of April. And the market looked very different then than it does now. Uh, we had just seen a massive run up in volumes and tender rejections that kind of peaked on March, or thereabouts March 23rd, and then fall, followed by a kind of a precipitous drop in both of those measures and a drop in spot rates. And so in the set, by the second week of April, brokerage executives were feeling pretty good um, about their businesses. They had seen three weeks of expanding margins and, capa- and loosening capacity, and they thought that freight markets were stabilizing, that they would be able to book trucks easily and cheaply uh, for the foreseeable future, and that um, they could once again return to margin expansion. But what we found was that that actually wasn't the case, that most of those calls took place kind of around the market bottom, and then volumes accelerated from there, capacity tightened from there, and rates uh, increased from there. And kind of going back and looking at, you know, it, it's you see like this big, the shape of the quarter is this big U-shape, like, right. like concavity, right? But if you take all of those days and you have, and you say you take the, the it's in Sonar, it's DATVF.VNU, but it's DAT's average national spot rate. If you take that for every single day, add it all up, um, and you look at the same period in 2019, this quarter had higher spot rates than the second quarter of 2019. On lower contract rates, that means tighter margins. And mm-hmm. so we think that um, a lot of these CEOs are going to be proven to be mistaken about the way that um, the market ended up playing out in the second quarter. That's, n- that's really no fault of theirs. Um, the other thing I think I think that's interesting, and the reason why we did the, the, the preview in the first place, Andrew, is that to the extent that these three PLs are able to maintain their margins, it would be because they use their scale and superior buying power to push rates lower in mm-hmm. April and then to keep them from rising as quickly right. in May and June. And so we'll see kind of um, to the extent that companies can outperform the basic market fundamentals, we'll kind of see, you know, how, how well they operated. But let's, let's say you're right in the fact or, or in the thought that the major brokerages, their, for, their Q1 earning calls happened in that second or third week of April. They were expecting wider margins in Q2. The facts and the dynamics of the, the, the industry changed very quickly. 
but there was something you said that it was no fault of theirs, and I wanted to kind of push push back on that a little bit. I mean, is it is it simply that they just expected that kind of lofty freight market that they were experiencing in that first couple weeks of April to extend further on, or that was that too optimistic? Like, well, how how did they miss the mark in this sense of of expecting things to be good for much longer than it actually was? I think that um, when they when they were talking to investors and analysts on their conference calls. It was near the bottom of both investor sentiment in the space, and um, and just you know freight volumes in general. And so I don't think they anticipated uh, the extent to which freight would recover quickly and then go, you know blow past sort of year over year break even points again, right? Um, and it took longer than it did in March. It wasn't driven by short haul refrigerated loads, you know. And, and consumer food hoarding. It was it was across all all sort of um, you know, with the exception of a flatbed, which is only just now started to turn back on. Right. It um, it was driven by dry van freight across the country, um, and dry van is still outperforming reefers. So I just think that the the pandemic has broken down a lot of um, formerly stable relationships between the data sets that these executives are used to looking at mm-hmm. and you know it's just it's just making the the economy act weird in general yeah i i can't disagree with that <laughs> the economy's acting strange right now but you you mentioned there for a moment uh, about if these public brokerages are able to not uh, to, to to avoid the the margin contraction uh, that they, you know, that's because they were bigger and they were able to, to put forth pricing power. Is there any, you know, and I, this, this is kind of off the cuff on the top of your mind, is there any of the brokerages specifically that you think are in that position to do that more so than the others? Yeah, I think in particular, um, C.H. Robinson uh, and Echo should be really good at this. Um, and the reason I say that is because they both have, and, and J.B. Hunt as well, they both built a lot of um, technology and sort of internal marketplaces for freight um, that may be less volatile than the load boards, for example. So when I quoted the DAT spot rate, that's based on the load boards. When when you look at our research and we're talking about truckstop.com rates on specific lanes or truckstop um, volumes on certain lanes, that's also load boards. And I think that uh, sophisticated freight analysts think about spot um, in, in a kind of a stratified way where there's mm-hmm. kind of ad hoc spot markets between large shippers and their favorite providers. There's marketplaces that brokerages create for their qualified carriers. And then the the, the load boards are kind of um, the most volatile uh, of them all and, and kind of perhaps... Um, I think you, you know, referred it to it as the day of market, or somebody yeah, you quoted somebody referring it to yeah, as the day of market. Yeah, w- William Kerr from Edge Logistics. Um, he he's really smart, um, especially thinking about carriers and, and the capacity market. And he always uses time preferences, so he calls it the day of market and, and the next day market and the two day market. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, I just think that um, to the extent that these large three PLs have scale and have sort of internal marketplaces, they might be more insulated from the kind of frantic volatility that you see in some of the load boards with wild, you know, load to truck ratio swings and things like that. All right, so let's get to the elephant in the room that I'm sure people are that are watching want to know, and that's how how much 
contraction are we expecting to see? How, how far can these margins get squeezed when they report their earnings here in the next couple of weeks? What are you expecting? It's going to be really hard. And I, I would say that Q2, um, I don't think it's going to be the end of the story because uh, I just think that there are underlying capacity issues that as, as the economy recovers and as freight recovers will become more and more apparent um, and they're not going away anytime soon. Too few trucks have been ordered. Too, too few drivers have been added. Uh, there have been too many carrier failures. And um, they affect different parts of the market differently. But, I, you know, I, I think that um, I wouldn't be surprised to see margins, you know, negative by 100 basis points year over year. And I would think that Q3 and Q4 um, might be worse. Really? Well, you know, this is that whole capacity crunch argument that that not only freight waves was was uh, buying into and and kind of pushing forward there pre-covid is that is that is it the same similar type of uh of thing you're expecting to happen here soon after if we don't see volumes you know retract a little bit off of this ridiculous surge that they're on right now if you see volume staying this high do you, do you see the up on tender rejection index staying in the double digits for an extended period of time i mean that's the big question right and, and i think in another in another venue, I compared the July 4th holiday to like a singularity or an event horizon that's really hard to see beyond. Mm. It's always a fundamental break point in the market where it's really hard to tell right now if we're in a seasonal surge that's normal but maybe amplified um, versus the beginning of like a structural, you know, cyclical um, turn in the market, right? And so I, I think what to look for after the holiday is how capacity behaves in relation to volume, right? And you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's if capacity stays tight with a little bit of volume underperformance, that'll be a key that um, Q3 and Q4 might get a little wild. I wanted to pose this question to you because it was something that we briefly touched about last time I saw you last week, and it was just the, the general idea of how volumes and rejection rates have, uh, have have worked with each other over the last few months. When we first saw that initial surge back in March, you saw carriers very quickly react to the surging volumes and started rejecting freight in favor of spot market loads, in favor of, of trying to, to get some extra dollars, get some extra pennies on the mile, excuse me. But here in the second surge, it's been a much slower and more gradual move upward to the right. Yeah. That's something you guys speak about a lot. Yeah. So, you know, why did, and I, I'm under the belief that it actually has taken a little bit longer, probably about two or three weeks longer than I would have expected it to take for carriers to start reacting and start rejecting freight. Why do you think that's taken so long? And, and, if, and do you think that's going to be a continuing trend after the fourth? It was kind of like the stock market rally this year that was widely hated by investors and no one wanted to believe in and everyone was talking about that it didn't make sense. There was this volume surge that carriers didn't really trust and I think they didn't believe in and they really uh, wanted to hold on to the contracted freight that they had um, you know, bid so aggressively for last year. And they've been over backwards and in, in some cases may have sacrificed a little bit of asset utilization to keep servicing those customers. Meanwhile, um, as different parts of the economy diverged in performance, with some shippers uh, shipping more freight, some shippers shipping less, I think their, their networks made less and less sense in a way. And their networks got more and more out of balance. And as they gained confidence in the volume rally, they became more willing to 
just reject contracted freight and try to, you know, make money. So um, I think that's part of it. It's just a, sl- a gradual uh, building of confidence on in, in carrier psychology, really. We've been talking a lot about how capacity is going to react to volumes, but I do want to touch on volumes just for a moment because there are, just as you mentioned in your in your paper, that there's a lot of uh, convoluted data being that being put right now. It's it's honestly right. the, the, the cognitive cognitive dissonance is dissonant is dizzying. Excuse me, and I I, I wanted to talk to you and just we can just briefly discuss you know we have good things that that are going to, and i wrote about this in the dhl supply chain pricing power index last week that i believe the the consumer spending data there was enough gas in the tank to to keep this freight uh this keep this freight volume elevated but i wanted to know you know for you briefly discuss or add some color on the kind of some of the headwinds that may be ahead of us uh f- on that freight volume side of things yeah, I mean, I think one of the headwinds is the fact that we have um, a pretty undeniable uh, wave of second and uh, secondary wave of infections hitting kind of the Sun Belt right now, um, and it's still too too young of a surge to really see how badly um, deaths are going to go up. But we've already seen um, pretty strong indications from policymakers that they're going to act aggressively to try to get the outbreaks back under control, and so things like, you know, closing bars and restaurants, et cetera. But that happened before. Um, and, you know, I, th- I, d- I still think that one of the big things that people forget about a putative correlation between consumer spending data and freight volumes is that American consumers in normal times spend a lot of money on services. Right. And when they can't do that, they buy stuff instead. And they'll buy stuff, they'll buy one kind of thing if they're excited and optimistic about the future, but they'll buy something else if they're worried and scared about the future. And all of those things have to be moved by trucks. And so to the extent that um, a mix shift from services to goods can be obscured by just looking at a single number of, okay, consumer spending is down. And, I, and I'm appreciative of the way that you break it up into different sectors. To that extent, like, it, you know, I, I wonder how much, um, how much that will affect it. I think an obvious headwind, of course, is expiring enhanced uh, unemployment benefits. But again, does that put more people back to work sooner? What does that do for production and new orders and things like that? Like, you know, what does it do for um, for the for the employment rate? Like, I, I don't really, I don't think the effect of the uh, that's obvious. And I also don't even necessarily believe that um, you know appetite for an, another round of fiscal stimulus in Washington has been completely like stated. Like, I think. There might be another another one coming. Yeah, that was going to be my follow up question: is is not only one, do you believe there should be, and then two, do you think they'll actually follow through and, and be able to pull through another round of uh, a fiscal stimulus? I think there should be another round of fiscal stimulus. Um, Give me if, them twelve hundred dollar Donny Donny bucks. <laughs> yeah, Trump bucks. Um, if the economy needs it, I think it should be much more targeted and thoughtful. Um, I don't, I, and I think after the generic $1,200 check to people who maybe didn't necessarily need it, um, the, the payroll protection stuff, and then the unemployment benefits. Like, I think people have, have reflected on the incentives that those create and the behavior it drives. And I think, I would hope that another round would be 
um, sort of more strategic and directed toward places where it would make the most difference, namely, pay, I think, payroll protection. And, and, and to my understanding, I'm not a policy expert, um, there's a, lot amount, there's a lot of money that has not been claimed and has not been efficiently moved through the system to small businesses. And so I think maybe even just on the Treasury Department side and on the, the agency side, um, there might be a lot of work to do to make sure that you know, the laws that are getting passed or the orders that are being signed um, are translating into sort of economic momentum. Yeah, this is certainly something that Kevin Hill would be uh, adamant and excited about here. He, he talks about it all the time that he's, you know, it doesn't matter how much money the Fed uh, and and the and the and the federal government pumps into the economy if the banks aren't lending it out, if there's not enough demand for those loans, that money's just going to sit. So, yeah, well, this has been a great conversation. Let's hop, uh, let's jump ship a little bit because I've got two long shorts that I think can fill up the rest of our time, and I think they're they're going to be very fun to talk right. about. Uh, I'm not sure if you've if you've read anything about the two, but the first one is about a company that I I do believe both of you and I are very long about, and that's Uber. There's been uh, it's not new news. They've been doing this since 2016 or 2017, I think, but they have uh, recently ramped it up. Cities have have been more. Uh, this has been a nor- more desirable thing for cities to do. And, and basically, I'm just going to say, are you long or short the idea of Uber partnering with municipal transit authorities? And they've been doing this for a few years. Again, I think they've got, I don't know, 100 or 120 uh, municipalities that they now work with, where they basically just license out their tech to these cities uh, to augment the transit that they provide to their people. So whether it be a a late-night sprinter van that can come along a a typically run late-night highway next to a bunch of bars and take people home, either way, they're trying trying to fill some of those very empty buses that are running right now. What do you think about this idea? I like it. I think that um, when Uber first rolled out their their transit partnerships, they were they targeted uh, the kinds of movements that were short and in sort of city interiors, very short distances, but slow, namely the things that aren't profitable for Uber to do. And so it wasn't like a net loss for them to kind of help cities fill that. And, and I think that um, anything that they can do to change the um, – attitude of policymakers and uh, you know sort of urban planning type people uh toward the you know the attitudes that those people have toward uber anything they can do to bridge to bridge that kind of um divide uh it would be really positive yeah, I, I'm with you on this one. I'm very long this idea. I love it for Uber. I think uh, I, I think for them this is complementary and not uh, a, a substitute in which they once thought it was. They they were kind of avoiding these partnerships or very reluctantly agreeing to these partnerships because they thought this was kind of a direct competition to them. But I don't think it's that so much. Uh, but also as a as an Uber holder, this is a much higher margin business. So and, and they run on a very tight margin uh, industry. So I'm very happy. You got something to say? Yeah, no, I just think that um, they started off with the kind of a growth at all costs mentality that was very aggressive and, mm-hmm. and driven by the former CEO, Travis Kalanick. But I think that the company's gotten a lot smarter and um, has really embraced local knowledge of, you know, certain markets. You know, they're in 700 cities and they're realizing more and more that each of those cities are different, that each of those cities has uh, different mobility needs and mm-hmm. capabilities. And I think that they're really trying to design their markets and their services in an intelligent way. I, I mean, I really like the company. Um, I think it's, you know, 
whatever you can say whatever you want about the stock itself, but I think that th- the company has grown uh, far more than even some of the most thoughtful um, investors thought it would, and, and, and it's really created a, a new market and a new industry. So, I mean, I, th- I think it's I think it's great that they're thinking granularly and, and really digging into the particularity of each market. Yeah, I, I'd agree. The, the last thing I'd add is that. Um, as I worked for the Chattanooga City uh, government for a year, I, under, I understood that they have widespread issues across the board. Every city does, obviously, and, and that every city does have different problems. You're right about that. So I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about this uh, for every city that's involved in it. I mean, I, I see the buses right now when driving by my home completely empty, running back and forth. I mean, it's a complete waste uh, to the city. So I'm, I'm very excited about this one. Um, all right, another one I'm very excited for that we'll move forward to. Uh, it is an IPO that is scheduled for this week. They've been, uh, you know, it's been a, a long build up to this IPO. They are an insure tech company. That's what they consider themselves. A lot of people argue that back and forth, whether they're an insurance company or they're, whether they're a tech company or whether they're kind of some sort of marketplace in between. Either way, this company is called Lemonade. They will be. Have you heard anything about Lemonade? No, I don't know. Okay, okay. okay. Well, good. I'm excited. So I'll me. explain the company to you. Lemonade is a an app. They are they are dominant in the millennial market for insurance. You hop on, you chat with an AI bot for 30 seconds or 90 seconds, and you give them enough information about yourself. And within, you know, a couple minutes, you have an insurance uh, offer right there, a policy there with multiple policies that you can choose from. Uh, it basically has augmented the idea of going through a massive uh, insurance company. And speaking with somebody about, over the phone. We're talking about health insurance, auto insurance, all terrorism it, insurance. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, all, all the major. They're into health and uh, and auto right now, and home insurance. I think they're, but they are expected, and their plan is to expand into almost every realm of insurance that you can go. Let me give you a couple more stats about them. Because so if I want to build like a, a house on stilts in Nassau, can I get homeowners insurance from this company? Possibly so, and and okay. his and at least from from the conversation I saw with the CEO last week, I can't remember his name, but he basically somebody asked him a similar scenario in which a highly risky uh, thing would go on, and he says, "Well, listen, you come through our chatbot, like the 98% of the claims that come through the chatbot are finished right there within a couple minutes, and if they don't, of course, they have an exception management team with real people you can speak to." But a couple real quick before I get to uh, asking you, are you long or short? They have a lot in common with a lot of the other ambitious SoftBank-backed startups. They are backed Uh, by – their major investor is SoftBank. They are pre-profit. They've got widening losses expected over the next few years, but they've got – a huge TAM that everyone right. else from SoftBank does. And yeah. again, they're kind of like a quasi-tech company uh, that calls themselves a tech company. But they are on a down round. They were they were valued about $2 billion last year. They're going to IPO at about a $1.5 billion valuation. What do you think? Do you think their IPO is going to be sweet or sour for Lemonade? Man, without very much data, uh, without even even the, the numberless <laughs> the SoftBank, yeah. SoftBank graphs, <laughs> Uh, it's hard to say. I like the idea, though. Um, I think that one of the worst parts about the insurance uh, business from the perspective of the consumer is how hard it is to talk to people, how hard it is to get questions answered and resolve mm. problems. So if they could build a better customer service mousetrap, I mean, they could grow really quickly and hopefully not have to. Um, and especially, you know, hopefully young. you would think young people would be a more profitable population to insure. I, I really don't know. Um, but I like it. 
I'd say yeah. long. I would say long. Why not? Give yeah, it a shot. I'm, I'm other, a, other people's money, right? Not yeah, my. exactly right. <laughs> I uh, I'm long the company. I think I do think the IPO will be sour. I think that just I don't know if I don't know if the appetite right now. People have investors people, have think, changed over the last. I think public markets maybe don't take um, SoftBank valuations at face value. So you know, I wouldn't buy it the day of. I might wait until the lockup period expires yeah. and get a couple quarters of, of, of data. Um, but I'm intrigued. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it makes a lot of sense for them. They need to go public. They need to get more attention as a national brand. I mean, right now they, they literally dominate the millennial, you know, app focused uh, uh, insurance market. But that's a small market, and you got to grow it from there. Right. Uh, and. On top of that, I think COVID has really helped them. I think the idea that COVID has forced everything on the internet, it's forced everybody, but it's also awakened a lot of people to realize that these some of these conversations they have with customer service representatives are completely a waste of time and that they could yeah, be done with an AI chatbot. And, right. and one thing that makes them different than other SoftBank-backed uh, companies, specifically WeWork, in which WeWork called itself a, a real estate tech company, is there really was no tech. These guys actually do have a proven, really capable AI chatbot that can answer almost every question within seconds. So they do have some proprietary tech. That's interesting. That's cool. Um, I like it. I wonder how they manage their float and how aggressive they are. To, you know, the, One of the other big problems with WeWork is that it had long-term liabilities and short-term assets yeah, that right. were volatile and long-term liabilities that did not change and they were buying at the top of a market. I wonder how that mix of liabilities and assets looks looks like uh, for Lemonade. Yeah, we will see. There'll be IPO in this week. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very excited about it. I think it, I think the Robinhood traders are going to hop on it. I think they're going to go wild on it. Uh, but JP, <laughs> my man, thank you for joining me today. You, you hold down the fort with me. Uh, and I guess, what are you guys working on this week, by the way? Just on a quick um, note, you got about 10 seconds. Yeah, we are working on some TMS stuff, actually taking a deep dive into that industry, trying to figure separate the wheat from the chaff and really figure out which of these companies are good at what and, um, and that sort of thing. All that's right, sort of, some TMS working. stuff. Yeah. Well, all right, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Six-day, 23-and-a-half-hour break. See you next time.